before the Lord's Supper. All right. Our second reading, Joshua chapter 5. I will read verse 13 through verse 15. Hear the word of God. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place you were standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you ever have the pleasure of taking a road trip with me, you will soon learn that I hate backtracking. Life is too short to travel the same road twice on at least two occasions that I can recall. And you can ask my wife, Ava, about these the next time you see her. On at least two occasions that I can recall, we found ourselves traveling in the boondocks in the days before GPS, only to have our road blocked by a closed bridge over a flooded river. Now, you may have noticed that in sparsely settled parts of the world, highway bridges and railroad bridges are often built parallel to each other and close together when crossing a river. A good route for a railroad is a good route for a highway, and both of them are probably just following some old Indian trail anyway. And you may also have noticed that railroad bridges are typically built higher than highway bridges. They rarely flood. All of which means that should you come across a bridge that is blocked by a flooded river, you can go look for a perpendicular road connecting that highway to the railroad crossing. And then all you have to do is look up and down the tracks and turn right and straddle the rails and go wumpa, wumpa, wumpa across the railroad bridge to get to the other side of the river. Now, I'm not recommending this procedure particularly if you have children in your back seat, but it is one way of avoiding backtracking, and I've done it on more than one occasion. I mentioned my aversion to going backwards because that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. And I want you to know that I am going backwards against every instinct in my body because what we are going back to is so hugely important that it's worth a detour. We're going back to four verses in Joshua chapter 5. We read through Joshua chapter 5 a couple of months ago. And at that time I warned you that we may need to come back to this passage. And so here we are. 
The scene is immediately before the battle of Jericho. The Israelite army is camped around the doomed city. The settling of the promised land by God's chosen people is just about to start in earnest. And Joshua, the young leader of the people, has a mysterious encounter with a man who claims to be the commander of the army of the Lord. It's a brief scene, just a few sentences, and the book of Joshua offers no editorial comment about what transpires. But this scene deserves our close attention. The theological term for what is happening in this brief story is epiphany or theophany or Christophany. Our word epiphany comes from the Greek. It means to appear or to show forth. Sometimes it's been translated as to shine. Three Kings Day is also called the Feast of Epiphany. It celebrates the time when the Christ child was first shown to the world, to the three wise men who came to worship him. Now, based on this Greek word, which appears several times in the New Testament, the church invents a new word, theophany, to describe those times when God appears, when God shows himself, or when God shines in a way that we're able to see him. And Christophany is the more precise term that we use for those times when Christ appears, when Christ shows himself visibly to individuals. What I want to argue in this sermon is that Joshua, on the eve of the battle of Jericho, saw and spoke with none other than Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Let's take a closer look at this passage. I invite you to open your Bibles so that you can have the text in front of you while we work our way through. Joshua chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. The Baptists will already have had their Bibles open, okay? We're just waiting for the Presbyterians. In verse 13 we read, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. There are times when God the Father speaks audibly and directly to people, but without being visible. A disembodied voice from heaven. In 1 Kings 19 at Horeb, Elijah heard God as a still small voice. There are times when God the Father speaks to people in dreams and in visions. But this side of heaven, no one may see the Father and live. That's what God himself says in Exodus 33 verse 20 where we read, where we read For man shall not see me and live. In our reading from Judges chapter 13. How many of you remember that interesting story about the birth of Samson? It's an unusual story, isn't it? Go back and look at that again. Very mysterious. In that story, Manoah, the father of Samson, 
thinks he's seen God, the Father, and he says to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. Jesus says a similar thing. Jesus says this in John 6.46, referring to himself, Jesus says, No one has seen the Father except he who is from God, speaking about himself. So when Joshua sees this man with a sword in his hand outside of Jericho, he is not seeing God the Father, for no one can see the Father. Something else is going on. Verse 13 continues, And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Joshua asks him the kind of question you would ask an ordinary man on a battlefield. Are you with us or are you against us? At this point, Joshua has no idea that anything special is going on. What he sees looks like an ordinary man. And then that man speaks, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And here's our first big clue. A common name in the Old Testament for Yahweh, for God the Father, is Lord of Hosts. That's old-fashioned language for the Lord of an army. The Lord who has an army. God has a huge army. The word host is just... English for a lot or a whole bunch of people. And who is the commander of that army? Who is the commander of the army of the Lord? The answer to that question is given to us in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, pure and white, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who are the armies of heaven following Who is the commander of the Lord's army? It's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The one who is called the Word of God. We call him Jesus. And he was there at Jericho. Is it any wonder that the walls fell down? Joshua 5.14 continues continues this way. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? There have been times when angels of the Lord have appeared to people and the people have fallen on their faces in worship. But always the angels refuse to accept that worship. If this commander of the army of God had been an angel, 
Joshua would have been rebuked for worshiping him. The Apostle John made that mistake in Revelation 22, where we read, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of all those who heed the words in the book, worship God. The fact that the commander of the Lord's army accepted Joshua's worship confirms that he was no angel. It confirms that he was God. And finally, we read in Joshua 5.15, And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now that should remind you of Moses' encounter with God in the burning bush in Exodus 3-5 where God spoke to Moses and said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. It's almost the same language. So here's the summary of what we've encountered in these few verses in Joshua chapter 5. Joshua meets a man. A man who is the commander of the Lord's army. A man who is none other than the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, Jesus. Joshua sees this man. He worships this man. And he lives to tell about it. If he had seen God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, he would have been struck dead. If he had seen a mere angel of the Lord, his worship would not have been accepted. What Joshua sees is God... Truly God, Son of God, who has the capacity, we don't know how, but who has the capacity to appear in human flesh without ceasing to be God. One day, of course, the Son of God will do that as Jesus of Nazareth. We're familiar with that incarnation. But centuries before that incarnation, the Son of God appears at the gates of Jericho on the eve of this great battle, and Joshua, the leader of God's people, worships him. The Trinity is absolutely central to the Christian faith. God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity are fully God, and yet each is distinct. The Trinity is an eternal communion within the Godhead. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking of the persons of the Trinity as though they were (coughs) to have appeared in a sequence. You know, first there was God the Father, and then on that first Christmas, God the Son shows up, and then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit appears. But that's wrong. All three persons of the Trinity have been eternally present And they appear together in Scripture already in the first chapter of Genesis at the creation. God the Father is present, of course, because it's His will that there be a creation. And the Holy Spirit, we're told, hovers over the chaotic waters of the deep. 
And when God puts order into the chaos of creation, it is through His eternal Son, the Word of God, which He speaks aloud. God says, let there be light, and there was light. God creates creation through the second person of the Trinity. My suggestion this morning is that Joshua met the Son of God. Who would one day be incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth? And that suggestion is not my own novel invention. It is, in fact, a very standard interpretation of the church. One articulated as early as the second century by Origen of Alexandria, later by Martin Luther during the Reformation, it is the, uh, an interpretation that is broadly embraced within the Reformed Church. While God the Father never appears in the flesh to be seen by fallen humans, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, it seems, has this capacity to appear as a man with no reduction of his divinity. And Apparently, this has happened a number of times. Church of Scotland pastor J. Douglas McMillan identifies the angel who wrestled with Jacob as none other than Jesus. Jonathan Edwards, the great American Puritan, identifies the fourth man in the fiery furnace in the book of Daniel as none other than than Jesus. And I think that what Manoah and his wife saw there in that flame on the altar may also have been Jesus. Certainly the commander of the Lord's army appearing to Joshua on the plains of Jericho is none other than Jesus. The beauty of the thought of the pre-incarnate Jesus himself showing up at Jericho to lead an invisible heavenly army to clear the way for the children of Israel as they enter into the promised land. The beauty of that thought alone should make us worship and sing praises to holy God. But beyond the simple wonder of it all, beyond the deepening understanding that Scripture gives us of who God is, of His triune complexity, I think there is also a very practical application in these few verses from Joshua chapter 5. And let me offer a few words about that before we turn our attention to the Lord's table. Let me begin by giving you my conclusion and then I'll try to give you my reasons for it. I believe this passage in Joshua chapter 5 teaches us that instead of chasing mountaintop experiences, we need to take off our shoes and feel the holiness of the ground on which we already stand. 
I believe this passage teaches us that instead of chasing mountaintop experiences, we need to take off our shoes to feel the holiness of the ground on which we already stand. All of us, I hope, have had mountaintop experiences, experiences of the glory and the presence of God. We have this phrase, mountaintop experience, in English from the story of the transfiguration. You remember that event when Peter, James, and John go with Jesus up some mountain. And there, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. And Jesus is transformed. He begins to glow like the sun. This isn't a vision that they're having. This isn't a dream. This is a piece of the supernatural glory of God visible to their natural eyes. They got a glimpse of the kind of body that we're going to have when we are resurrected and when we're living in New Jerusalem. But when it was time for this brief episode on the mountaintop to be over, Peter wants to stay. And he asks Jesus if he can put up some tents where they can remain. And then the Father, God the Father, speaking from heaven, rebukes Peter, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And the glory disappears. The portal between this world and the heavenly realms closes. Sometimes we have these mountaintop experiences. Sometimes we have these glimpses of glory. Maybe the preaching is fire-breathed. Maybe the music is glorious and beautiful. Maybe the fellowship is heart-melting. And we want to remain in that moment and bask in it. And we feel sad when it slips away. And sometimes like junkies, we spend the rest of our spiritual energy pursuing just one more high, just one more glimpse of that glory. But God says, listen to Jesus. Addiction to mountaintop experiences can be deadly for Christian discipleship. Because disciples don't follow mountaintops, they follow Jesus. And that path isn't from mountaintop to mountaintop. It leads into all kinds of ordinary places populated by ordinary people. And that path sometimes goes through the valley of the shadow of death. And that path always brings with it the command to take up your cross. Yes, one day we're going to be glorified. Yes, one day we're going to be transfigured and live in the new Jerusalem in new and wonderful bodies. We need to keep our eyes on that prize and constantly whet our appetite for heaven. But if we replace a godly longing for heaven with a fleshly longing for mountaintop distractions from the path of discipleship, then we will be seduced left and right by imitations of real glory, and we will leave the work of God undone. Instead of chasing mountaintop experiences, we need to take off our shoes and feel the holiness of the ground on which we already stand. Joshua is... Standing on the dusty plains of Jericho. 
He's standing at the threshold of the settling of the promised land. He's at the cusp of a mighty battle, a battle against evil, a battle that will consume the rest of his days on earth. And he's not there because of ambition. He's not there to feed his ego or to feed his head. He's not there because of a desire for fame or glory. He's not there because he wants the land or the gold or the chariots. He's there for one reason alone. Because the word of God has instructed him to go there. And so, in obedience he goes. And he goes with no guarantees, other than the word of God, that this adventure will turn out okay. He goes with no guarantees, other than the word of God, that he will even live through the first battle. He doesn't go to a mountaintop, he goes to a dusty plain. And there on that plain, he meets the commander of the Lord's army. He meets Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus tells him to take off his shoes because the very ground, the dusty plain, not the mountaintop, because the very ground on which he stands is holy. Take off your shoes, Joshua. Let nothing, not even shoe leather, stand between you and the holiness of the ground to which the word of God has drawn you. Every single one of you, if you're in Christ, every single one of you has been called by the Word of God to stand on holy ground. And that holy ground need not be on a mountaintop. It's most often in the ordinary dusty plains of your life, in the ordinary dusty plains of your life, in the places that you live every day, in your marriage, in your family, in your job, in your church office, in your free time, in the ordinary dusty plains of your life, that's where the holy battle will be waged. Instead of chasing mountaintop experiences, we need to take off our shoes and feel the holiness of the ground on which we already stand. And let's not be naive and think that Satan is just, you know, an antiquated myth. Satan is alive. He is well. And he prowls around seeking to devour and to destroy those he can. He hates you because he hates God. And he hates God because he wants to be God. Satan wants to destroy your marriage. Satan wants to scatter your family. Satan wants to infect your job and your ambition. Satan wants to corrupt your engagement in church life. Satan wants to turn your free time to unsavory uses because he hates you. There is a battle going on. And Satan is a fearsome foe. But thanks be to God, we're not the ones fighting the battle. Rather, we stand with Jesus, the commander of the Lord's army, and Christ wins the battle. Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, captures this Christian battle. He writes, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. 
His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And so we pray every day, Lord, speak your word. Let your truth triumph through us. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forevermore. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we stand before you and we worship you this day. You have promised that wherever two or more are gathered in your name, that you would be there. And so here you are, and we worship you. Thank you that you are the presence of God in our midst. Thank you that you loved us and pursued us and died for us. We thank you for your word, which is eternally true which reveals the mind of Christ and reveals the character of our own hearts. We pray this morning that as we come to your table, that we might come worthily, perceiving your presence in this humble place, so that we might worship you truly so that we might be equipped for the journey so that we might bring you honor and glory. Amen. 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 I'm going to invite you now to remain seated as we 